0: Our Father, as we come to you today, we recognize that you are holy and that we are not, that we desperately need your grace and that we desperately need the illumination of the Holy Spirit, the illumination that only he can give us to help us not only understand your word, but to apply it to our lives. And so, Father, we pray that Your Word would accomplish Your work in us. Convict us, encourage us, strengthen us, reprove us where necessary, all for the glory and the honor of Christ, and for the edification of Your people, for our growth in Christ's likeness, we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bible with you, you want to turn to Matthew chapter 13. We're going to be continuing our study in the parables today as we do every first Sunday of the month. And the parable that we'll be looking at today will be in Matthew chapter 13. Few things are more more dangerous um, than a wolf in sheep's clothing. And with that said, few things are more important than understanding that there are wolves in sheep's clothing. Imagine, if you will, for just a moment, being in the military, and some of you have been in the military, but imagine whether you served in the military or not. Imagine that you are in the military and you find out that the soldier who's been serving next to you doesn't represent your country, but instead represents and works for the enemy. This is somebody that you converse with regularly. This is someone that you even eat with regularly. You spend time together regularly. If you're in the military, maybe you even sleep in the same barracks. You think you know him, but the thought that he was actually enlisted and sent by the enemy to infiltrate your army has never crossed your mind. And this isn't just something that you might see in a movie Uh, from time to time. Of course, if you've seen Red Dawn, there's a scene in there where uh, one of the Wolverines agrees to put a, a homing beacon or a location device on himself in exchange for the Russians agreeing to take care of his family. But this kind of stuff actually happens in the real world as well. And what's been come to be known as, or described as, possibly, quote, the worst intelligence disaster in U.S. history. A former FBI agent by the name of Robert Hansen compromised literally dozens upon dozens, if not hundreds, of FBI investigations and operations between the years of 1985 and 2001. In 1984, he was assigned to the FBI's Soviet Analytical Unit, which gave him access to the names of KGB KGB spies who had turned sides, who had given information to American intelligence, to the FBI and to the CIA. And so in 1985, he anonymously wrote this letter to the KGB offering his services for the cost of $100,000. And in this letter, he provided three names. Of KGB spies who had come to America and had given us vital information. And this information, the fact that the information that names got leaked, eventually made its way back to the FBI, who then assigned this guy, who assigned Robert Hansen, to the team who was responsible for hunting down and finding the person who had written this letter, who had leaked these names. And this was only the beginning of a long and prosperous, very lucrative career for working for the Russians, working for the enemy as a trusted employee and citizen of the United States. Now from a military standpoint, just from a a, a neutral, uh, objective military standpoint, this is an absolutely brilliant strategy because it works extremely well. The FBI had their guard down when it came to Robert Hansen. And that's the same reason he's an illustration of the fact that few things are more dangerous than a wolf in sheep's clothing. It's not just a military strategy. It's also a spiritual strategy. See, when Jesus was in the midst of his, his earthly ministry, His disciples all expected that when the Messiah came, it would be earthly power. It would be this, this fierce military that would drive out their adversaries. Their idea of the Messiah was that He would put Israel back in power through military force. Physical military force. But Jesus said to Pilate, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. It doesn't get much more clear than that, right? Jesus's kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. And he's currently reigning over his kingdom from the right hand of the Father. But there came a time in Jesus's earthly ministry when he would share truths about his kingdom in a way that would reveal these truths to his people, but would conceal the truths that he was communicating from his enemies. We've already seen in our study of the parables, we've already seen uh, one of the parables in which he told us about the nature of the kingdom in a way that concealed the truth from his enemies. That would be the parable of the soils, which was immediately prior to the one that we're going to look at today. You remember the, the parable of the soils? There are four different types of soils. There's there's hard soil that uh, a seed can't penetrate, and so when seed falls upon it, the birds come and and eat it and take it away, and it, it never does anything. Then there's rocky soil, which can be partially penetrated by the seeds, but it doesn't allow for a seed to develop a strong enough root system for it to withstand incredible heat from the sun. Then there's a soil that was filled with thorns, which choked out and destroyed any good vegetation. And then fourth and finally, there was good soil. And of course, good soil uh, allowed the seed to not only penetrate and not only take firm root, good root, but also produce fruit. But now let's go back to the fact that the disciples thought that the kingdom of the Messiah would be an earthly kingdom that it would be this military force that would involve driving out and destroying all of Israel's enemies they thought that the coming of the kingdom would involve the earth being filled with things like holiness and righteousness and justice but right after the parable of the soils Jesus tells another parable to correct their thinking And that brings us to the parable, which is probably best known as the parable of the wheat and tares. So if you have your Bibles open, we want to be looking at Matthew chapter 13. Let's look at verses 24 to 30, where he tells us this parable in order to reveal and conceal some truths about the nature of his kingdom. An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. We need to understand that there is never anything that's good that has no opposition and that is perhaps especially true when we're talking about spiritual matters jesus's kingdom of course is a good thing we can all agree on that right jesus's kingdom is a good thing it's a very good thing in fact but jesus wanted his disciples and he wants us to know that his kingdom faces fierce spiritual opposition And sometimes that does manifest itself physically. For example, when the church is persecuted, when Christians are martyred. It might not be happening here yet. Christians might not be martyred here yet. But it's going on around the world and it always seems like we're getting closer and closer to the day when Christianity in our country is extinguished through martyrdom. Of course, God is sovereign over that, and we remember that, and we take hope in that. So sometimes, the church does face physical opposition, but it always, always, even when it's not facing physical opposition, it always faces spiritual opposition. Jesus wanted His disciples, and He wanted us to know that there's this strategy so that we can be on guard against the enemy. Because few things are more dangerous than a wolf in sheep's clothing. And conversely or similarly, few things are more important than understanding that there are wolves in sheep's clothing. And that this is certainly, without any question, one of the tactics that the enemy of our souls, the accuser of the brethren, uses against us. So Jesus tells this parable to communicate this reality. He's not talking about agriculture here. He's using agriculture, of course, to illustrate a spiritual truth. So there's this hypothetical farmer who sows good seed. It specifies good seed across his wheat field. And if you plant nothing but good seed, what exactly do you expect when the harvest comes? You expect a good harvest, right? A, a good harvest of, of healthy crops. But while his servants are sleeping, the farmer's enemy comes and he sows weeds or, or, or tares. Tares is the translation in some other uh, translations. He sows weeds in the farmer's field. And it's not just any weed. Some weeds are, are really easy to distinguish from, from wheat. But in the early stages of the development of a tear. It looks exactly like wheat, but it isn't wheat. And so for some time, it looked like this was an even better crop than the servants would have been expecting, than they had ever seen before. That is until they took a closer look as it got closer and closer to harvest time. The plants started bearing grain. And suddenly the workers of the field realized that they had a very serious problem on their hands. So they go to the master and they reported asking him if they should take care of the problem by themselves by uprooting all of the tares. Makes sense, right? But the master instructs them not to, noting that if they were to uproot all the tares, they would also uproot some of the wheat in the process. And so the master explains that the wheat and the tares will be separated one day. At harvest time, when the tares or the weeds will be burned and the wheat will be gathered into the farmer's barn. Now, here's what we need to know we need to keep in mind that the wheat and the tares, the wheat and the weeds, look exactly the same for a season. It's only at the time of the harvest that the differences really become evident. And that's why they're weeds. They're, they're like fake plants, fake, fake wheat planted in the middle of real wheat. So interpreting this parable, just like with the parable of the soils, is, is actually made very easy for us because Jesus goes on to explain it. After this parable, he tells a couple more smaller parables. But at the end of the day, when the disciples are alone with Jesus, this is the one that stuck with them. This is the one that they've been talking about and trying to figure out, trying to solve all day long. And so this is the one that they come to him and ask for help in understanding. Isn't that interesting? Out of all the parables that he told that day, this is the one that stuck with them. You know, they they usually don't do that. Usually when they're puzzled, they try to kind of hide their hand a little bit. They don't try to make it completely evident that they are completely lost. That they, that they don't understand or they don't follow. They don't ask a lot of questions. But this one really perplexed them. And so they asked Him to explain it for them, and He obliged. Look down at verses 36-43. to 43, And we'll continue here. It says, Then He left the crowds and went into the house, and His disciples came to Him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field." He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. And then He draws the application. He who has ears, let him hear. What does that mean? It means listen up. Pay very close attention to this because this is extremely important. So given... The explanation. We see that it's, from our perspective anyway, because it gets explained, it's not a very complicated parable. But it was for the disciples because they had all of these preconceived notions about what the kingdom would be like when the Messiah came. They had all these expectations. They had all of these assumptions that they had already made about what the Messiah's kingdom would be like. So Jesus explains that the farmer represents Jesus. The good seed is the gospel of grace, which produces wheat. Which produces the wheat represents the sons of the kingdom, that is, Christians. The weeds are sons of the evil one. And notice, by the way, that that term, sons of the evil one, runs parallel to the term the world in verse 38. And the point is that the devil has sowed sons of the devil among sons of the kingdom. What exactly is Jesus talking about here? He's talking about the church. He's talking about His spiritual kingdom. He's talking about Christian community. The redeemed. The elect. And Jesus is saying that in His kingdom, the church will be characterized by being filled with two kinds of people. Those, first of all, who have been truly and authentically regenerated and converted. And secondly, those who look like they've been authentically regenerated and converted. They, they look like they're Christian. They may talk like they're Christian. They may do things that Christians do. They may even listen to Christian music. They may go to church. They may read their Bibles. They may pray, but they are not authentic Christians at all. They might even believe, by the way, that they're a legitimate Christian, but they're not. They're not. They might truly believe that they are on their way to heaven. But if they stay on the same course, if they stay on the same track, the day is coming when they will wake up in hell. And this is going to be the reality, this coexistence between the wheat and the tares is going to be the reality that exists until the harvest, which represents the day of God's judgment. So the purpose of this parable is to warn us about the existence of counterfeit Christians, as a pastor, I I tell people this is one of my favorite parables, not because of the darkness of it, but because of the way that it serves as a wake-up call for me every single week. It's a reminder to me to preach the gospel every single week because there's always the possibility that somebody I'm preaching to may be one of those counterfeits. Part of the lesson of this parable is that we can't always tell the difference between the legitimate and counterfeit Christians. So what does that mean for us? Well, it it speaks to us in a number of ways. It speaks to our hearts and and to our minds. It informs our thinking about the, the nature of Christ's kingdom, but it also has some very important, extremely important practical applications as well. But let's start with what it tells us about the nature of Christ's kingdom. Let me speak for a moment to, to your intellect primarily. And let's look at what it tells us about the nature of Christ's kingdom. The first thing we need to understand is that we really do have an enemy. Satan isn't just some mythological creature that somebody invented somewhere along the line to explain the presence of evil in the world. No, Satan is a real person. He's a real entity. His presence in the world is real. His existence is real. And perhaps the greatest con he's ever pulled off is convincing people that he just doesn't even exist. But the truth is, and we must be aware of the fact, that our enemy is real. He does exist. The Bible tells us a lot about him. It tells us that he disguises himself as an angel of light, according to 2 Corinthians 2 chapter 11, verse 14. What does that mean, by the way, when it says that he disguises himself as an angel of light? It means he appears on the surface. He he appears to be good. Maybe he even appears to be a Christian, but it's a sham. it's, It's all disguised because lurking underneath his facade is an enemy who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, according to 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11 warns us about being ignorant of the devil's schemes. So given that he's real, given that Satan is a real demonic entity, And given that Scripture explicitly warns us, it warns us about being ignorant of His schemes, Jesus is telling us what one of His schemes, one of His strategies, one of His ploys is. It's to mix in His people with God's people. It's to mix in counterfeit Christians, fake converts, with legitimate converts, and Paul says this. He says, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 15, "It's no surprise if his servants, his servants referring to, to Satan's servants, also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness." So what do we do? We've got this information. What, what does it mean to us? What are we supposed to do with this information? It's pretty simple. Just know it. And given the fact that you know it, stay on guard. And don't be ignorant of the devil's schemes. We avoid being ignorant of this satanic strategy of false converts and and counterfeit uh, Christians infiltrating the church. We're not ignorant of it. We're aware of the fact that it happens. And that doesn't mean, by the way, that we just kick them out of our fellowship or, or shun them necessarily. What did Jesus say here in explaining this? He says, you can't tell the difference. You can't tell the difference between them. and You'll end up hurting some legitimate converts if you were to try and cleanse the church and purify the church and rid the church of every false convert. Besides, think about it this way. If they are, let's just assume that they are not a legitimate convert. What is going to change that? The gospel is. Exposure to the Gospel can change a person's standing before God. They need to be exposed to the Gospel week in and week out as regularly as possible because only the Gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And we do want them to be saved. So to shun them or, or, or to kick them out because we think that they're a weed or we think that they're a tear is actually to prevent them. It's to keep them away from gospel preaching. And to keep them away from gospel preaching is to keep them away from the one thing, the one thing that has the power to save them. Man, you'd really have to hate somebody's guts to prevent them from hearing the gospel. So, we remain mindful that this is a strategy that satan uses we remain vigilant we keep our guard up and we carry on with the mission that christ has given us and that brings us to the second point that we should draw from this parable and that is that this is the design that christ has for his kingdom in this age this is intentional design You do know, don't you, that Satan actually needs God's permission to do anything, right? He doesn't just have free reign of the earth. He doesn't just have free reign of of the inhabitants of the earth. Whatever he does, he can only do because God allows him to do so. He's like a dog on a short leash. If Christ didn't want tares among the wheat, he's all-powerful. He can can take them out. He can prevent them from ever coming in. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul starts off the chapter by talking about how we were all born as children of wrath. Children of wrath who followed the course of the world and followed the prince of the power of the air. That is, by nature, we too followed Satan. That's a consequence of being members of a fallen race. We were all born with a desperate need for God's grace. From the moment of our very conception in the, in the womb, we are sinners by nature. And we need the gospel. So given that this is Christ's intentional design for this age, for His kingdom, we need to understand that there are no perfect churches. There are no perfect churches. It hasn't been cleansed yet. It hasn't been purified yet. The wheat and the tares haven't been separated yet. It will be one day. The church will be purified, will be cleansed one day, but that day has not come yet. And so with that in mind, the fact that the church isn't perfect isn't an excuse for anybody to not go to church. Nobody has any excuse For not putting faith in Christ, no excuse is going to stand on the day of the harvest. You know, you hear unbelievers and believers alike, you know, complaining about how the church is just filled with hypocrites. Anybody care to deny that? We we preach the need for for faith. We preach the need for repentance. But even our own faith, even our own repentance is so imperfect and so inconsistent. Does that make us hypocrites? Yes. Yes, it does. And and so, you know, this is at least part of the explanation for the presence of hypocrisy in the church. There are false converts also who falsely identify with the church. I'm talking about people like false teachers who proclaim a, a prosperity gospel. And they bring shame upon those who believe in the true gospel when their shams and their ploys and their money-making schemes are all exposed on the news. We've all seen it happen. And people see that and they think that that represents us and so they think, okay, the church is filled with those kinds of people. Hypocrites. I, I don't want any part of it. But we need to understand that because the church has not been purified yet, the presence of hypocrites in the church isn't a valid excuse for not coming. That's like complaining about the presence of homeless people in a homeless shelter. What do you expect to find there? See, a church is a hospital for sinners. It's not a country club for the righteous. So this is God's design for the church in this age. And with that in mind, we have to understand that the presence of counterfeit Christians in the church does not thwart God's plans for the church in any way, shape, or form. You know, our our knee-jerk reaction, our our instinct would be to, to kick them out, but the farmer goes against this reactive instinct of the servants who want to uproot all the weeds. The farmer has a plan that will eventually deal with both his enemy and with the tares that are planted in his field. In the meantime, we must not grow weary of doing good. We must stay the course and live in a manner that is worthy of our calling. The third application, I'm going to aim this one right at your heart. And third application, given that our instinct might be to hunt down and to identify the false converts who infiltrate a local congregation, we need to see that Jesus makes it abundantly clear that we won't be able to correctly or accurately distinguish the differences. It's not our job. We will make mistakes and legitimate Christians will be uprooted, so to speak. They'll be hurt. They'll be wrongly disciplined. They'll be wrongly rebuked or reproved. Instead, this parable, instead of, instead of uh, forcing us to, to look at others and try to identify false converts among us, instead, what this parable forces us to do is something very similar, but at the same time, very different. It causes us not to examine others, it causes us to hold the mirror up to ourselves and to examine ourselves. Paul instructed the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. He said, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you unless, indeed, you fail to meet the test. Now, we have a pretty small church here bigger than it was seven years ago, but it's still a small church, and I know most of you pretty well, but as you know, we also have a significantly larger audience that listens to us week in and week out on the internet, and so with that said, I don't doubt for one second that every single week, every sermon I preach is heard somewhere by somebody who is a terror. It's heard every week by somebody who is a counterfeit Christian. Now, it's entirely possible that we've had some of them here in our midst, or, or that we have some in our midst, I suppose. People who think they're saved, they claim to be saved, they look and talk like they're saved, but the reality is that they are not, or, and they never were truly saved. You have undoubtedly if you've walked with the Lord long enough, if you've known enough Christians, self-professing Christians, you have undoubtedly known someone like this. And maybe you suspected that they weren't really a Christian or, or maybe you had no idea that they weren't a legitimate Christian. I have undoubtedly known people like this. We work with them. We live around them. Maybe they're your neighbors. Maybe they're your friends. Maybe they're your family members. But the point is to be less concerned with identifying who they are and to be concerned only with examining yourself to make sure that you aren't one of them. Now, why would I want you to examine yourselves? Is it because I don't think you're a real Christian Is it because I don't think that you're bearing enough fruit, that you're doing enough good, that your faith is strong enough, etc., etc.? Is that why? No. It's because I don't want anybody to go through life being deceived into thinking that because you said a prayer, or because you came forward for an altar call, or because you were born in America or because at some point in your life you were baptized. I don't want you to be deceived into thinking that any of those types of things guarantees that you are a legitimately converted Christian. You may be living with the impression that you are, when in reality, you're not. And that's why we all, myself included, we all must regularly and rightly examine ourselves. Myself included, by the way. I'm I'm very aware of the old adage, uh, that if you're looking for the devil, don't forget to look in the pulpit. So, how do we examine ourselves? What does that even mean? What are we What are we looking for? Well, if we remain mindful of the text and looking at the context, the parable which preceded this parable, the parable which came right before this parable, ended with Jesus describing the good soil, which produces what? It produces a harvest of good fruit. So, what fruit are we looking for? Well, the fruit of the Spirit, sure. Uh, What about repentance? Yeah, absolutely repentance. In fact, I would say daily repentance. Listen, if you have never repented, you've never believed. You've never truly believed. And I know that that's a strong statement, but that's a statement that I will stand by until the day I die. True saving faith is always, always a repenting faith. True saving faith will instill in us an instinctive desire to turn away from anything and everything that doesn't please God. That doesn't mean we won't sin. It means that we will be aware when we do. That at some point, it will become evident to us. And so, when we, the more we study the Word, the more the Holy Spirit works in us, the more we turn away from anything and everything that doesn't please God. If you repented when you first came to Christ, that's great. But it doesn't end there. It can't end there. Because even after conversion, you've got this ongoing war with the flesh until the day you die. And sometimes it's going to get the best of you. It will get the best of you daily, in fact. So repentance, we have to understand, is a way of daily living. It's a lifestyle. It's a fruit of true conversion. What else would you look for? Well, what about faith? Absolutely. Let's talk about that for a minute. What do you believe? That's an important question. What do you believe? Do you believe that Christ, that Jesus Christ is Lord? Let's talk about that. That's very important. Paul spells it out pretty clearly for us in Romans chapter 10 verses 9 and 10, where he writes, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Two years ago, a friend asked me to listen to uh, the sermon that their pastor had given for Easter Sunday. And in this sermon, the pastor who, from what I could tell, had no idea what he was doing, he said this. He was preaching on these two verses. He said, okay, on three, we're all going to say Jesus is Lord together so that you can leave here today knowing that you are saved. Ready? One, two, yeah, I'm not even kidding. This was a real sermon in a real church. But that is not what Paul is saying. That is not what this means. That's heretical. That's absolutely heretical. So what does it mean to say, to confess, that Jesus is Lord? Well, I think our understanding of it at least has to include what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 3. He says, no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Further, Jesus warns us about many who will say to him, on the last day Lord Lord didn't we do all these great things for you you know we did all these things that were totally supernatural in your name and what's Jesus going to say to them I never knew you depart from me you workers of lawlessness now there's a hint there's a hint in that verse that tells us exactly what it means to truly say that Christ is Lord We see that false professors are what? They're workers of lawlessness, Jesus says. Conversely, a true convert strives for obedience unto God. So as you examine yourselves, let me ask you some very pointed, very direct questions. Are you living your life? All of your life, every aspect of your life under the authority of christ because that's what it means for him to be lord it means he has authority over every aspect of your life the whole thing the whole shebang it's all his so are you living under his rule and reign does the way you talk to your friends reflect the lordship of christ in your life Do the websites that you visit reflect the lordship of Christ over your life? Does the way that you do your job, week in, week out, year in, year out, reflect the lordship of Christ? Does your sexuality reflect the lordship of Christ? Do the things that you do for entertainment reflect the lordship of Christ? These are literally life and death questions, friends. Are you living under Christ's lordship? Every aspect of your life, are you striving to bring it all under his authority? As Christ's people, we are to remain mindful of the fact that there will be unbelieving, counterfeit Christians in the church, but we aren't supposed to use that tactic ourselves against the world. You follow what I'm saying? Just because it's it's hard to tell the sheep and the goats apart doesn't mean that the sheep get to act like goats. What I mean is, as Christ's people, we're not to mimic the world. We're not to live the way that the world lives. We're not to love the things that the world loves. We're not supposed to value the things that the world values. Because all the things that the world loves, all the things that the world values are contrary to biblical Christianity. That is, they're opposed to God's sovereign rule and reign. The world doesn't yield to the will of God. That's by definition. So you might say to yourself, but, but I know that I said a prayer one time, I know that I've said and that I believe that Jesus is Lord. Great. That's a very good start. But if your life doesn't reflect a submission to His Lordship, then the risk is that you've believed it up here, but you haven't believed it down here. You've believed it intellectually, but what does Paul say? He says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe where? Where? In your heart. Not in your mind. In your heart. See, the heart represents your will. It, it represents the things that you, that you desire, the things that you pursue, the things that determine which course of action you're going to take. And so the person who sins over and over and over again, showing no sign of repentance, showing no sign of putting up a struggle against sin, has no biblical basis for claiming to be saved. See, even Satan himself knows that Jesus is Lord. You know that? Even Satan knows that up here. He knows it intellectually. He also believes that Jesus was raised from the dead. He believes it. He knows it happened. But what good has it done him? He knows those things intellectually, and he shudders at the fact that those things are real, but he hates God. And he won't submit his will to God. And He will suffer in the lake of fire for all of eternity alongside His demons. Yes, of course. And alongside even those who called out, Lord, Lord. But never yielded. Never yielded their will to Christ. John MacArthur says this. He writes, If repentance, holiness of life, and submission to the Lordship of Christ are all optional, why should we expect the redeemed to differ from the heathen? Who's to say that someone might not be a believer just because that person lives in stubborn rebellion against God? If people say that they believe, shouldn't we just take their word for it? The tragic result of this kind of thinking is that many people think it's fairly normal for Christians to live like unbelievers. And I'm here to say, no, it's not. That is not normal. It never has been, and it never will be. In fact, if a person is persistently living in stubborn rebellion against God, if they blend right in with the world, they should be absolutely terrified, scared straight, because heaven and hell, life and death, really are on the line here. So the application, the main application, is that we must examine ourselves. Rightly, that is, in the light of Scripture, and regularly. The last application I want to draw on this parable, I want you to see that we are here because Christ Himself planted us here. Now, I don't know about you, but when I see all of the stuff going on in the news, when I see all the craziness in the world, that's just growing by leaps and bounds in our day and age, I kind of wish, wish we could go back to like Little House on the Prairie days. You know what I mean? I, I, I wish that I could just go off and, and build myself a, a fortress that protects me from all the junk and all the garbage that's going on in the world, all the evil, all the influence that the world tries to have on me. I mean, wouldn't that just be so much easier to live in seclusion, to just run for the hills, but that's not what Christ would have us do. He planted us to live right alongside, right in the midst of children of the devil. And it might seem to us that the world would be better off without them, but the truth is, we can't have that kind of attitude. You know, they're, they're just acting in accordance with their nature, their fallen nature. They're dead in their sins and trespasses. What do you expect them to do except do exactly what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, to follow the course of the world, to follow the prince of the power of the air, to follow Satan that is, and to obey the desires and the lusts of the flesh. What do you expect them to do? The question isn't what do you expect them to do though. The question is what will you do? Pray for them. Pray for them and share the gospel with them. Be kind to them. Remembering that light shines more brightly in the darkness. And the more brightly you shine, the darker the world will seem. Jesus said this though, John 16, 33. He said, in this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. You can't escape the world on this side of glory. We're here to live in the midst of it as children of light in the darkness by God's sovereign design, as sons and daughters of the kingdom among sons and daughters of the evil one. Listen closely and and very carefully. If you examine your life and you honestly don't know whether or not you're a wheat or a tear. If you honestly can't say that you're striving to some degree to submit your will to obeying Jesus, you must think deeply. You must contemplate the fact that the day is coming when it will be too late to change course. That the day is coming when you, with the devil, will be thrown into a place of eternal weeping and gnashing of teeth if you are a weed, if you are a tear. And if that's you, and you're thinking, "I've, I've done too many bad things, God would never have me now. If that's you, I want you to know that it doesn't matter what you've done. God is willing to forgive you if you will turn from your sin, if you will confess your sin and believe in Christ Jesus. If you will repent and believe, He will lavish His grace on you. Like you would never believe. And you need to know that His grace is more than enough to cover every sin and the ugliest sins you've ever committed. But it will be foolish to wait. Because it's not going to be easier to repent and believe tomorrow. And besides, tomorrow isn't guaranteed. But if you are certain that you are wheat, listen, God is not only sovereign over the very fact that you exist. He is also sovereign and intentional about the fact of where you exist and when you exist. So make the most of it. Make the most of it by submitting every aspect of your life to the Lordship of Christ Live every aspect of your life for the glory of Christ. Make your calling and election sure. Examine yourself regularly and rightly in light of Scripture. Put to death the deeds of the flesh. Fight to the death to live a life of holiness without which no one will see God. Bear much fruit for the glory of Christ. Share the Gospel. Abide in Christ. Rest in His grace. Repent and believe over and over and over and over again until the day when either Christ calls you home, or He returns to separate the wheat and the tares. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You for Your Word. And we thank You, Lord, that You love us enough to warn us of the importance of of examining ourselves. And Father, we pray that You would shine Your light into the depths of our hearts and show us, Lord, show us what we have not brought under the Lordship of Christ. We know, Lord, that we are imperfect. We know that we are a fallen race. But we thank You that by Your grace, You redeemed us to live for You, to belong to You, to serve You, to spend eternity in Your presence, worshiping You. But between here and glory, Lord, the the journey is so difficult. So give us assurance, but not only assurance, give us right assurance that we may be strengthened in our walk and that anything that hinders us we may cast aside as we pursue You, as we pursue Christ, that He would be glorified in every aspect of our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name.